Um, like Kyle said, my name's Jonathan Keenan, and um, I work with a ministry of our denomination called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, and I have the joy and the privilege of being the campus minister at UCSB. And so uh, it's a privilege for me to be here and to, to fill in for Kyle and to open up God's Word. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn with me to John. It's the Gospel of John, so it's the fourth Gospel in the New Testament. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back, so feel free to, uh, to get up and grab one. Um, we're going to be looking at probably, arguably one of the most famous uh, verses and passages in, in all of the Bible. So if you are churched, you've probably heard this verse before. If you're unchurched, you've probably heard this uh, verse before. But, but before I read our, our passage, um, when I first moved... Uh, to Memphis, Tennessee. I'd been living out of the country for about four and a half years. I had the privilege of living in Scotland for a while. And so living out of the country and, and outside the, the southern diet, um, you know, was something to get used to. But I remember when I moved back um, from Scotland and I ended up in Memphis and I went to this restaurant called Sweetgrass Next Door and it ended up becoming one of my favorite places in Memphis. And I remember the very first time that I went, because on the menu, they had this entree that was incredibly bizarre. It was two items that when you saw them together, you're wondering how on earth can these two things go together? And it was a plate of fried chicken, which is a staple in the South, and fluffy Belgian waffles. Yes. Exactly, and I was like, of course, I've got to order this, because how does fried chicken and waffles go together? And I can remember when I ordered it, and the waiter brought it out, and, and he set literally the, the, the plate before me, and, and on two just beautifully crafted waffles laid two hefty pieces of, of deep fried chicken. And then next to that, he sat down just some kind of hot, fresh, organic maple syrup. And he said, there's one item that's missing. It's not on the menu, but let me go get it for you. So he came back, and he handed me a, a thing of Texas peat hot sauce. And he says, trust me. Put this inside the syrup, mix it up, and then just pour it all over. And it will be the most divinely tasting thing you've ever put in your mouth. And I was like, okay. Fried chicken, waffles, hot sauce, and syrup couldn't be more bizarre of an entree. And sure enough, I, I did exactly as he said, and sure enough, it was one of the best uh, and worst meals of my life. Best in the sense that it was gloriously, but worse because it was clogging up every artery. Um, what does Belgian waffles, fried chicken, hot sauce, and syrup have to do with John 3.16? Now that I've got your appetites wet, and what I'm going to argue is that John, in, in, in John 3.16, is he's going to hold out two things that when you see them side by side, you're going to wonder, how on earth do these two things go together? And, and what John is going to argue, and what I'm going to argue, is that unless you see these two things together, like you, you have to see these two things together. And when you do, it will be one of the most glorious things you can ever see and participate in. 
And the question is, is what is the, the fried chicken and waffles of, of John 3.16, if I can put it like that? And here it is, that God is both a God of love and a God of wrath concurrently. How does his love and his wrath become a, a beautiful reality for you and for me? That's the question in, at the heart of John 3.16. So give your attention to the reading of God's word beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And jump down to verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God, they will stand forever. Let's pray before we consider it this morning. Lord Jesus, we know that your word is precious, like fine gold. We know that your word is, is sweet, like honey, even sweeter than honey that's dripping from the comb. And so it's our prayer this morning that we may taste and see uh, the wonder and the beauty that we see here in John chapter 3. So would you come and give us understanding? Would you give us help? So that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an article back in the early 90s in Newsweek that was kind of chronicling the, the resurgence of baby boomers heading back into church. And in this particular article, um, 
and, and kind of throughout the research of, of asking the question, like, why were the baby boomers deciding to kind of flood back into church? And, and the author of this article noted that one of the reasons, and this wasn't the only reason, but one of the reasons was because sin and condemnation and hell had kind of been airbrushed out of the vernacular of certain churches and ministries. Um, one person interviewed said this, There are no do's and don'ts around here. The minister has banished hell and condemnation from his vocabulary. Which is very interesting. But did you notice in our passage that we read that right next to arguably the most famous verse in all of the Bible that, that shows us God's love, right next to that, is a verse about condemnation and wrath. I mean, verse 36 just restates what verse 18 says, that those who do not believe in the Son of Man, the wrath of God remains on him. And the question is, is why do we struggle with this? Why do we struggle with the idea of a God who condemns, a God who is wrathful? And why is it that John puts this idea of God's wrath right next to God's love? Why is it as a, as a culture we have a problem with God's wrath? And here's the thing, nothing shapes our lives more than how we view God. So if you only see God as a God of love, that will shape your perception of reality. And if you only see God as a God of wrath, that also will kind of shape your view of reality. Think about it. If you only hear, if you're here and you only see God as a God of love, like if your primary grid for how you view God is a God of love only, then you'll often relate to God as this kind of grandfatherly figure in heaven who always says yes who never puts any sort of demands on our lives. And when we begin to, to actually flesh that out a little bit, we'll begin to believe that if our primary grid for how we see God is only a God of love, then we'll begin to believe that what we deserve most in this life has to do with our own happiness and pleasure, right? But what's the problem with that? How does this view actually shape your life? Well, what happens when things don't go your way? or when tragedy strikes, or when our own self-indulgence begins to kind of dehumanize us, what happens? Well, we become cynical and disenchanted with God. We'll often feel unemotional, apathetic, moved, and we'll become indifferent. But what happens if our primary grid for how we see God is only a God of wrath, one who only condemns, who never says yes. The primary grid for how you see God and relate to him then is on always on a grading scale, right? So when you fail or experience disappointment, then that immediately corresponds to a God who's always disappointed in you, who's always thinking of you as a failure, 
Now, how does that shape your life, if, if that's the primary grid for how you see God? Well, if you see God as constantly rating your performance, then you'll grow up dutiful, compliant, obedient. But you'll always live with a deep, deep insecurity. And you'll often feel neglected, and you'll often doubt whether not God is actually good and gracious and loving. And what will happen is, is you'll often feel beat up, run down, and exhausted. And there's this strange mixture of pride on the one hand that says, look at how good I'm doing. I'm dutiful, I'm obedient, because God's always on a grading scale. And a mixture of insecurity, I'm not doing enough. I can't quite please him. And here's the thing, those primary grids are terrible ways to live, right? If you only see God as a God of love, or if you only see God as a God of wrath. And so it's absolutely critical for us this morning to actually have a biblical view of God. And here's what John is, 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 is suggesting to us this morning, that God is both concurrently a God of love and a God of fury a God of wrath, a God of justice, of condemnation. And that's really good news for you and for me this morning. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at two things. I want to look at first, the Father's wrath is actually an expression of his love. Okay? And then secondly, the Father's love is an expression of his commitment. First, the Father's wrath is an expression of his love. Again, verses 18 and 36. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son. And at the end of verse 36, the wrath of God remains on him for whoever does not obey the Son. Why do we have such a hard time with this? You know, historically speaking, people... Years ago, you used to have no problem with the idea of a God of wrath, a God of justice, a God who would condemn. Historically speaking, people had a difficult time with the idea that God was a personal, loving God. And yet, today, that has been reversed. We disdain the idea of a God who might bring justice and condemnation and wrath. But is that right? Is that the proper way to think about it? Vince Gilligan, some of you might know that name, he was the creator and writer of one of my favorite TV shows, Breaking Bad. And I came across an interview that he did in NPR a couple of years ago. And, and during the interview, he was reminded of a quote that he gave in another article, a New York Times article, where he said this, that he found atheism just as hard to get his head around as Christianity. And the reason for that was this. Because in an atheistic worldview, there is no such thing as cosmic justice. And so what's the point of being good? So he was reminded of this, this quote that he gave in the New York Times. And he says, no one has ever explained that to me. And so Vince Gilligan, he's, he's an agnostic. And part of the reason he's agnostic is because he's kind of disenchanted with this idea of an atheistic worldview that doesn't have cosmic justice in its system. He goes on to say this, I'm not saying that if suddenly it was proven to everyone's satisfaction that there was no God, 
There was no point to it all. I don't think suddenly everyone would start robbing banks, nor should they. But just one of those things you find yourself wondering at 3 a.m. in the morning, when you're lying awake, unable to sleep, you know, what's the point of it all? And it's funny, my girlfriend of almost 20 years has this great line that I always quote. She says, I can stand the thought that there's no heaven, but I can't stand the thought that there's no hell. Because, you know, where is Hitler then? You know, where is Pol Pot? There's got to be some sort of payback. Interesting. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian and public figure, wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he's talking about growing up in a, in a very war-torn part of the world where injustices are scattered throughout the country and people are upset with the idea of retaliation. And here's his main thesis. If God is not angry at this, at the war-torn injustices, if God is not angry at that, then that God is not worthy of worship. Listen to what he says. He says, My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes to God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. Like other pleasant captives of the liberal mind, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. You see what Vince Gilligan and Wolf are saying. You see what they're longing for. They're longing for things to be made right, for evil to be punished, for injustices to be overturned. And what Jesus is actually showing us this morning is that God's wrath, his settled opposition against all that is evil and sinful, is actually an expression of his love for you and for me. I mean, if you deeply love a person, does that rule out the possibility that you could be angry with them? If you're a parent, you're going, of course not. <laughs> if you love anyone, that does not rule out the possibility that you could be angry with them. Actually, the more that you love a person, the more that you will be angry at the things that seek to destroy the person you love. E.H. Gifford wrote, Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. God's anger is his settled opposition against all that is evil and sinful. His anger against the evil and injustices is actually an expression of his love. Now, how can I illustrate that? 
Well, here's a ridiculous example. Any of you modern family viewers? There was this episode on Modern Family called Party Crashers where Haley, she's the oldest daughter, um, she's, she's upset with her parents and so she kind of devises this plan to get back at them, her mom and dad, Claire and Phil, and the way in which she does that very maturely, she starts dating a very creepy guy. Uh, this creepy guy says very inappropriate things in all the wrong places, especially in front of Phil and Claire. But Claire, she realizes that Haley's trying to get a rise out of him, so she convinces Phil, her husband, to kind of go along with the plan, to pretend like it doesn't bother them at all. And so you can imagine the scenario where it kind of, Claire kind of lets it go a little too far, you know, so they're in this hotel having dinner, and Phil is just getting angrier and angrier the more that he's around Kenny. He's just kind of this sleazy, just really inappropriate guy, and, and Claire continues to convince Phil, just trust me, let's keep, keep it going, keep it going. To where finally, you know, Phil gets really angry at Claire, and he gets up, and he leaves the dinner table. At this point, Haley's so upset with her mom and dad that they don't even care that she's with this terrible guy. So she comes back into the scene and she's standing in front of Claire. And she's like, I can't believe you're letting me do this, you know? Why are you not angry? Why don't you stop it, you know? And she gets back to Claire. Well, then Claire leaves, I mean, uh, Haley leaves, and Phil comes back in <laughs> in one of these great dad moments. He looks at Claire and he says, I've had enough of this little chicken game. That's my little girl. No guy on earth is good enough for her, much less a slimy, aged gene salesman. And what Phil didn't know is that Haley was around the corner and she heard everything that her dad was saying. And of course, she runs back and she begins to embrace him. And I thought, what a beautiful picture, right? You love me, therefore you hate with all righteous anger what will seek to do me harm. You love me, therefore you will do anything in order to protect me. God's wrath is an expression of, of his love because he wants to protect us. Because he hates with all righteous anger what seeks to destroy us, what is not good for us. The idea of a God who is not angry at this broken and fallen world is a God not worthy of our worship. But you have to understand that God's anger and wrath, it's not like ours. His anger and his wrath is holy and perfect. It's not arbitrary. He's not ill-tempered. His anger is not cranky. It's a judicial wrath. It's his settled opposition against all that is evil. And it's an expression of his love. But notice what John says, whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already, that he loves the darkness more than the light, that the wrath remains on him. 
Why? Well, this leads me secondly to see that God's love is actually an expression of his commitment. When John says, when you refuse to entrust yourself to Jesus, you stand condemned already, and the wrath of God remains on you, what does this presuppose? What is, what is Jesus and John implying by that? What indicates that the natural trajectory of all of our hearts is that we have a settled opposition against God, our Creator. That's the natural trajectory of every single human heart. We show up rebelling against our Creator. Our natural inclination is to resist the goodness of God and live as our own King and Creator. That's how we show up. Jimmy Kimmel often has celebrities come on his late-night show to read mean tweets about themselves. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Well, one time he had President Obama come on his show, and he had President Obama read mean tweets that his people around the, around the United States had, had actually tweeted about him. So I want you to... See this scenario. You have the most powerful man in all of our country, holds the highest office, and he's reading on television what his people think about him. And they ranged from the absolute hilarious. So, for instance, one guy said, you know, a case of beer before you became president was $18. Now it's 30 Thanks, Obama. <laughs> One mom was disgusted that her daughter and President Obama shared the same birthday. She tweeted about that. They made fun about how he looked, made different comments about his, his dad genes. They ridiculed his inability to rule. One guy tweeted that he was unable to negotiate a Whopper without pickles. They were disgusted with what he liked. One guy said, you probably put mustard on your hot dogs. Gross. They taunted his strength and his power. One guy said, Obama, bro, do you lift? They defamed his presidency by comparing it to the Sharknado movies. Loud, stupid, and overhyped. It's hilarious on many levels, right? But I actually think that that gives a window into what our hearts are naturally like. That do we not do that with the supreme ruler over all the earth? Where we will defame his rulership by saying that our God is not wise and incompetent? Do we not make fun of his strength and power? God, why won't you do this? Are you not strong enough to handle this? Do we not ridicule and mock him? You see, that's what our hearts are naturally like. But here's the thing. Do you know that it's a crime in the United States to willfully threaten the president of the United States? 
There is condemnation and justice brought down by the Supreme Court for anyone who willfully would threaten the President of the United States. And we, of course, are like, yeah, I have no problem with that. I'm not surprised that that law exists. It's right and fair. But the question is, is why would we be shocked or surprised that God, the creator of all the earth, the sustainer of all things, the one who gives me and you life and breath, when threatened, mocked, ridiculed, should bring justice and condemnation on his creation. Why are we shocked by that? What we deserve is wrath and condemnation for our sin and rebellion, and yet what we find harnessed to the fury of God is his love. Our Father in heaven is committed to giving his children what they do not deserve by giving to them his most precious and beloved son. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave. God's love is an expression of his commitment to his children that is most clearly seen in the gift of his most precious son. Something that we do not deserve. He gives his son to those who mock and ridicule, who threaten and rebel in order that they might have life. His commitment to us comes in the midst of our brokenness and rebellion. It comes in spite of. A friend of mine shared with me a, a podcast called Modern Love. And it, this particular story was about adoption. And a couple had gone through the adoption process in China, and they were adopting a baby girl. And her name, they had named her Natalie. And they went to go and pick up Natalie after all the paperwork had been, had been filed and they had been given the rights to actually come and adopt her. But when they showed up, they noticed that Natalie had a massive scar on her, and so they began to inquire about what had happened. And so the story goes is that this couple ended up having to take their, their daughter to the doctor, and the doctor there began to examine her and realized that at two months old, they had found some tumors on her, and they went in to remove the tumors. But the surgeon had, had done a terrible job. So much so that she ended up developing a form of spina bifida. And so Natalie was going to grow up paralyzed at the waist down and was going to have to have full-time care for the rest of her life. And here's the thing. This particular couple, in the adoption process, you can kind of fill out whether or not you would prefer a special needs child or not. And this was the type of family, and they kind of admit this in the podcast, that they, they weren't that type of family that had the kind of resources to take on a special needs person. And so the Chinese adoption agency said, look, we want to make this right. We will give you the option of, of taking home a healthier baby and we will keep Natalie. And so they had a choice before them. But as they began to go through that 
agonizing and painful choice, they realized something. That before they adopted Natalie, they had already loved her and set their affection upon her. They had already identified Natalie as their daughter, that she belonged to him, and they were just waiting for the legal processes to be done. And so they told the Chinese adoption agencies that no, Natalie belongs to us. And we want her as our daughter. Now here's what you have to see. You have a normal couple who before they ever received their adoption papers, before they even met Natalie, they loved her because she was their daughter. They had no idea how broken and needy she would become. But Natalie belonged to them because they loved Natalie. And here's what I want you to understand. God knows how broken we are. God knows how needy and helpless we are. God knows that our sin has made us sick. And some of you here this morning, your biggest fear is that you think you've done something so bad or you're continuing to do something so messed up, so awful, that you think you hear God saying, I want a healthier child. And so your biggest fear is that God thinks, you, your biggest fear is that you think God can't handle your brokenness, your neediness, your messiness. But the beauty and the reality of what we find in John chapter 3 is this. Our Heavenly Father, He knew just how broken and messed up His creation was. And yet, before all of that, He set His love and His affection so much so that He was willing to give up His natural Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to adopt those who had been orphaned by their sin to be a part of his family. His love is an expression of his commitment to a broken, needy, messed up world. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see ourselves at our absolute worst, right? That it took nothing less than the Son of God to die for you and me. That's the worst thing about you and me. And yet, at the same time, we see the Father at his very best. That he gave up his Son in order to have you and me a part of his family. For God so loved the world. On the cross, we do not get what we deserve. Justice, wrath, condemnation. No. In Christ, we get grace, forgiveness, Mercy, love. So what do we do with this? Well, let me close with this. If you're here this morning and you're not yet convinced of the truth claims of Christianity, I say this with all love and affection for you. But the wrath of God remains on you. 
The Old Testament in Isaiah, we, we learn that, that the condemnation of God, it's his strange work. What we learn is that God is reluctant to condemn the wicked. He will do so because it is right. Because he's a God of justice. But the overwhelming bent of the entire scriptures is that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. But he has bared his flesh for all the world to see. And he's inviting you with his extended arms this morning to come and entrust yourself to his son. He will condemn because it's right. But you need to hear this morning that that doesn't have to be the case. Because there's one who stood in your place for you. And so the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are inviting you this morning to finally entrust yourself to him. To where you can have the assurance and the security of knowing that you belong to your creator and to your heavenly father. So I would invite you this morning to come and trust yourself. If you are here and you do trust Jesus, praise be to God. Our response is then to lavish others with the generosity and the kindness that our Father has shown to us. And so a question that I will leave to you and a question that we will sing, are we a friend to fellow sinners? The way in which our Father has befriended us. The wrath of God is an expression of his love. And the love of God is an expression of his commitment to you. And so therefore we can entrust our lives and our service to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that what all of our hearts naturally deserve um, is to have your wrath and your condemnation come down upon our head for how we have willfully rebelled against you and your Father and your Holy Spirit. And yet the good news, which seems too good to be true, is that you, because of your great love for us, willingly and voluntarily stood in our place so that we might have life, so that we might know the love of our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the grace of our Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, it's my prayer this morning that there is anyone here where your wrath remains on them. Would you give them eyes to see, ears to hear, so that they may entrust themselves to you. Would you have mercy on them? And for those of us who are walking, though feebly with you, 
would you strengthen us, give us grateful hearts this morning, and would you give us the willingness to serve and love where you have called us so that we might be generous instruments in your hands to bring about the redemption and salvation throughout all the world by your grace. Would you do that for us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.